Hello, welcome to the third reading from Snooping Caprock, a novel by Jan Waldo. In the last segment, Sandra and her friends found human remains in the wolf enclosure at the zoo, and Sandra's feelings were hurt when her friends criticized her behavior. In this installment, she will witness a violent confrontation between Hazel and her elderly father, and when pigs go missing from the zoo, Sandra takes it on herself to have a talk with the zookeeper. My feelings are bruised. I won't deny it. First, Janine accuses me of avoiding my issues. Then Carol tells me I need to go back into counseling, and now Hazel has screamed in my ear, and I don't know why. So I do what I always do when I'm confused and feeling low. I call my mother. Sandra, she answers, we're having the most amazing time. We are so fortunate to live in such a beautiful country full of wonderful people. Her cheer is forced and exaggerated. Worried that I've called to whine about something, she's determined to neutralize my gloom before I have a chance to voice it. Where are you? I ask. Heading toward Nashville. We spent last night in a state park outside Jonesboro. And you're having a good time? I picture them driving along in their RV, getting passed by every other vehicle on the highway. Not my idea of fun, but they seem to draw pleasure from it. How's Edgar, she asks. Is he settling in? He crawled into my lap and purred, and then he scratched and bit me when I pet him. He doesn't like to be touched, she tells me. The remains of the head zookeeper were found in the wolf cage at the zoo, I say. Wolves ate him? How tragic! The sentiment is delivered offhandedly. She doesn't want to hear about anything that's not sugary. He must have stumbled in there by mistake, she says. That seems to be the general opinion. Today's the big game. Are you going, she asks. A big crowd, noise, football, I'd say. Does any of that sound like something I would enjoy? What are you doing while everybody else is at the stadium, she wants to know. Oh, I'll iron a few blouses and clean house. A productive afternoon. Good for you. You want us to pick up something fun in Nashville? A t-shirt? A Johnny Cash mug? Oop, Mom, got another call coming in. Talk to you later. Bye. There is no other call. I simply cannot bear any more of her indomitable good humor. She used to not be this way. She used to have moods just like anybody else. But since the incident, she refuses to show me anything other than bliss and optimism. I promised the nicotine group that I'd look into the pros and cons of electronic cigarettes. And because I think people should do what they say they're going to do, I spend the next hour researching e-cigs. There are several new studies, which I'll share with the group. But the statistics show that they're as harmful as cigarettes and they are not an effective tool if someone is trying to quit. After taking care of this, I'm bored. I have no desire to iron or clean. What I want to do is find out what's going on with Hazel. Gathering my purse and keys and pulling on a jacket, I'm out the door. Because of the game, there is no traffic on the streets and no cars in the driveway. No people are out walking and no children are out tossing balls. Some of the small businesses have closed signs on their doors. I have given Hazel rides to and from work a couple of times, so I know where her house is. She's financially well off and lives in the nicest area of town, the oldest section where the streets are cobbled and the homes sit in the middle of large, shady lots. Her Lexus is way up in the driveway. She and I are probably the only people in town who are not at the stadium. I've never been inside her house. Built before the Depression, it's got all the features of an upper-class abode of that era. A separate servant's entrance, a front and back staircase, a carriage house that's been enlarged and now serves as a garage. 
With walls of red brick and white shutters framing the windows, the aspect of the three-story house that's most noticeable is the line of the roof, a slope from an off-center crest that gracefully, gradually curves downward until, like a fairy tale cottage, the eaves almost connect with the earth. I know that maintaining this old structure is expensive and demanding. In the last couple of years, Hazel has mentioned wiring, plumbing, and countertop updates that sound like they're costing her a fortune. In this part of town, the lawns and beds are professionally tended, and whoever does Hazel's has gone to some trouble. Autumn flowers circle the base of the trees. Leafy shrubs, the kind that demand excessive nurturing in this part of Texas, border the front walkway. The bird bath beneath the tree makes the whole area seem friendly and inviting. I park on the street and approach the front door. I know it's rude to show up without calling first, but Hazel disdains social overtures at the best of times, and lately she's been more unapproachable than usual. Then, just as my finger is poised above the bell, I hear voices, strident and agitated, coming from within. Instead of ringing, I slide to the right and, cupping my hands, peer through the window at the side of the door. The foyer is lovely, with an oriental rug that's perfect for the space, a gleaming floor of cherry wood, a nook with a mirror, a hall tree that must be a hundred years old, and a massive crystal chandelier. And the spiral staircase with the hand-carved railing, it's also lovely. My attention is drawn to what's going on in the room beyond. Hazel leans over her father's wheelchair, her hands clutching his armrests and her face only inches from his. Everything about her communicates fury. The straining hunch of her shoulders, the white tension of her knuckles, the confrontational thrust of her chin. Her father glares back, refusing to retreat, his expression equally antagonistic. Then she straightens lifts one of her hands high from the shoulder and swings hard, slapping the old guy right across the face. His glasses go flying. Horrified, I gasp. Head high, she steps away, still fierce, not shaken, not repentant. The elderly man pushes himself up from the chair, a clumsy and difficult task. Unfolding into a thin tower, he sways for a few seconds before gaining his balance. From what I understand, he hasn't used his legs for anything other than transfers for close to a year. Hazel holds position in front of him, eyes hostile and daring, the tilt of her head defiant. With a fury to match hers, he pulls his arm back, then whips it forward, ramming his fist into her cheek, sending her reeling back and down. And then, in reaction to the motion, he loses his balance and he, too, goes down, collapsing to the side, a crooked, fallen tree. I recoil from the window. Back pressed against the smooth wood of the front door, looking out at the peaceful neighborhood, I'm overwhelmed, unable to move. Their rage, the violence, ugly, ugly. I count to a hundred, then I continue on to two hundred. I return to my car, get in, and drive away. On the way home, I stop at the garden center of Home Depot. Only one glum worker in the whole department, no customers other than me. When I ask him to help me load my new birdbath into the back of the car, he tells me he can't leave the area unattended. I manage to do it myself with less difficulty than I anticipate. The ceramic stand and bowl are colorful, decorated with elaborate birds and flowers. It will make a cheerful addition to my front yard. At home, I remove the bowl and pedestal separately from the back of the car and carry them across the lawn. Fitting the two parts together, I set it up under the big elm and fill it with water from the garden hose. In no time at all, it's discovered by a couple of sparrows. Next time I talk to my mother, I'll tell her about my new bird bath, how charming it looks beneath the tree, and how happy it makes the birds. I spend Sunday deliberately not thinking about what I witnessed at Hazel's. 
Also on Sunday, a news segment is dedicated to Hector Vasquez, a widower with four grown children and 12 grandchildren. The portrait they air on the news confirms my suspicion that this was the man, Hector, who came to addiction. In the group, he was soft-voiced and dignified, reticent when it came to discussing his issues. The toxicology results indicate mescaline and a high volume of alcohol in his system at the time of death. The theory is that he was hallucinating when he went into the enclosure. More information is promised upon completion of the autopsy, which is being performed in Dallas. One of the sons lives locally, so I look up his address and phone number and give him a call. I was a friend of your father's, I tell him. I'd like to come and visit with you, if that's all right. It's not a good time, he replies. We're not seeing visitors right now. There's noise in the background, several voices, music, clanging, like pans in a kitchen. I'm sorry for your loss, I say. I disconnect, get in my car, and drive over there. People sure live different kinds of lives. Though in another section of town, Manny Vasquez's home is similar to mine. Three bedrooms, one and a half baths. But I'm the only person who lives in my house. My lawn is neatly trimmed, and my car is always parked in its garage. Judging from the number of diverse types of vehicles on the weedy lot, the mismatched sets of play equipment beneath the tree, and the bikes leaning against the porch, Manny's house is occupied by many people of several generations. Dominating the center position, parked right in front of the door, is a massive red truck with dual rear wheels. The lettering on the side reads, Vasquez Contracting and Construction. I get out, approach, and, as there's no doorbell, knock. Just like on the phone, the hubbub level is high. Music, voices, metallic clashing. I hear the distant slam of a door, which tells me someone has exited out the back. Following the noise around and along the side of the house, I stop at a four-foot picket fence. What looks like 30 people mill around two long picnic tables. Men and women carry platters piled high with food from the back door to the tables. Beer cans are everywhere. The warm aroma of spicy grilled meat and friolis make my mouth water. No one here seems sad to have lost a loved one, or maybe this is the way they mark someone's passing. The men and women all look similar. Dark hair, glittering eyes, and short. They might all be related to one another or not. I take the man who heads the table to be the homeowner, Manny Vasquez. In his 40s, going gray, with thick lips beneath a heavy mustache, he resembles his father. Wearing jeans and a golf shirt, surrounded by this large, loud group, he seems to be the merriest of them all. I return to my car. That evening, I go to Celia's Cochina for Tex-Mex. I order margarita, chow down on chips and salsa, and then, for the main course, have a platter of chicken enchiladas with rice and beans. On Monday morning, Hazel shows up with a swollen cheek and a dark purple bruise beneath her eye. But Carol's hurtful words, lingering since Friday night, give me pause. She implied that I interfere when I shouldn't, that I claim ownership of other people's problems. I need to prove to myself that this simply isn't the case, so I will not intervene. I won't drag Hazel into a heart-to-heart. I won't notify any agency or authority. I'll keep things light. How'd you get the shiner? I ask, trailing her through the treatment room hallway, standing in the doorway of the break room as she tucks her purse into the bottom of the cabinet. The older I get, the clumsier I get, she says. Her movements are stiff and deliberate, as though her face isn't the only part of her that's sore. I turned a corner too quickly, tripped over my own feet, and fell into the wall. I guess next time you'll break before the curve, I joke. How's your dad doing these days? I ask because it's what I always do. Hanging in there, bless his heart. Her tone is bland, her expression guileless. 
Twenty minutes later, when Ham arrives and exclaims over her injured face, she offers him the same fabrication. In fact, so similar is her retelling, even the right introduction is the same, that I imagine her practicing the two sentences, saying them again and again until she's got the delivery and inflection just the way she wants them. The city council wants people to attend to the town meeting, which is held on the first Monday of the month, so the CCC is closed on Mondays. Because no groups meet, I often find myself without a definite plan, which, I confess, makes me a little crazy. I've tried other activities to fill the Monday slot, choir at the Episcopal Church, though I'm not Episcopal, reading to the elderlies at the Beaumont Nursing Home, tutoring elementary kids in reading, art classes at the community college. But none of these experiences inspired me. And the reason, silly as it seems, is that my well-being is tethered to the CCC. I'm accustomed to the cozy meeting room, the circle of chairs, the smell of coffee, the harsh blaze of the lights. Several Mondays in the last couple of months, I've gone to the CCC even though I know there's no meeting to attend, even though I know they're closed. I don't explore why I'm doing this, because as soon as I acknowledge that I'm driving over there, parking in an empty lot, and staring at a dark building, I'll have to admit to myself that I am behaving irrationally. But tonight, when I turn into the lot, the light's on in the main hallway, and a few cars are parked near the entrance. There aren't any people in or around the cars, so I assume they're all inside. I pull up next to an old Sebring, get out, lock, and go in. The CCC consists of a central hall with rooms extending off of it, each with an engraved sign posted beside the door that states its purpose, parlor, conference, administration. Even though there are cars out front, the place has an empty feel to it. Usually, kids in matching shirts are in and out of the gym at the rear of the building, releasing noise and energy into the atmosphere. The parlor, too, hosts boisterous activities, everything from mahjong to bingo. But on Mondays, nothing is ever scheduled. So who is here and why? All it takes is a quick glance to see which room has its light on. It's the small meeting room, the one where all my groups meet. I put my eye to the narrow vertical window at the side of the door. Five women sit in a circle, a circle I think of as mine. There's a meeting taking place right now, right in my regular room, that I didn't know about. There's been no announcement of a new group forming, nothing in the paper or on the news. The center of attention is a thin woman, crying as she speaks and swiping her cheeks with a crumpled tissue. She has a nervous tick, a maddening up-and-down spasm of her eyebrows, a physical manifestation of whatever neurosis has brought her here. I open the door a crack so I can hear. And I was hurt. Oh, yes, he hurt me, but the pain went away. Up and down goes her brow. But the fear won't go away. I was so scared, and I can't stop being scared. Fear is with me all the time, every time I turn a corner, every time I enter my apartment building, every time I get in or out of my car, even in the daylight. You're in counseling? This from a broad-faced blonde woman with sympathetic brown eyes. Is she their leader? Most groups don't have a designated leader. Also, she says, the helpline is really, really good here. We understand what you're feeling, says another. We've all been through it. With me, one woman says, it wasn't as much the man being mean as it was me being stupid. This one has bleached hair and too tight jeans, definitely a woman of poor judgment. She says, I drank too much and wasn't thinking when I got in the car with him. In the end, my choice was to have drunken sex with some guy I met in a bar, I didn't even know his name, or walk home from the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. More coercion rather than rape, right? It was the expedient thing to do. I'm such a slut. No, no, that's where you're wrong, the first woman said. This is exactly the kind of, I allow the door to close. I want nothing to do with this. Disappointed, I slumped back down the hallway, out of the building, and back to my car. 
Their discussion has made me sad and for some reason guilty. As soon as I recognize the guilt, the reason for it becomes clear. I feel guilt because I feel scorn, and scorn is not an empathetic emotion. And if there's one thing I've learned through attending all these groups, it's that empathy is a vital component in the foundation of a mentally healthy person. But really, women sitting in a circle, feeling sorry for themselves, feeling frightened or foolish or weak, victims. I have no patience with victims, and I certainly don't want to hear their depressing stories. Lowering the visor, I pull back my hair and angle my head so the jagged line above my temple is reflected in the mirror. The scar is hardly noticeable, no more than a slightly rough contour beneath my fingers. But, oh dear, I've caught that crying woman's tick. My brow is raising and lowering, raising and lowering. Stop it, I tell myself, placing my palm across the upper portion of my face, pressing downward, putting pressure on my forehead until the tick goes away. The next morning, a segment of the morning news is broadcast from the zoo. A woman reporter, golden hair waving in the breeze, stands in front of the open gate of an enclosure and tells how, sometime during the night, someone broke into the zoo and released the pigs. At this time, they haven't been found. What the hell? Janine asks as soon as her car doors open. Who would break into that pathetic, smelly zoo and steal those little pigs? She grunts as she works her backside from behind the wheel, and I wish for the hundredth time that she'd drop some weight. You think someone stole them? I ask. I figured they were set free like the elephants and monkeys. Who knows? They're cute for pigs. On the TV news, much is being made of their cuteness. Pictures of their peggy faces and forward-pointing ears take up the screen. The viewers are being subjected to many lectures concerning the history, care requirements, and popularity of Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs. Pigs are pigs, Janine says as we walk from our cars to the garage exit. Maybe someone got hungry. They should have a memorial service for Hector Vasquez, I say, but I haven't heard anything. Someone who gets killed by zoo wolves deserves to be remembered by the people of the town where he died. But here in Caprock, the impact of his demise has been replaced by missing pigs. You sound like you're interested in going to it, she says. He was in one of my groups a few years ago. It'll be a while before they have the results of the autopsy. Can they have a memorial service without a body? I ask. I guess they can do whatever they want, she responds. They're saying the wolves are going to be put down, I tell her. This disturbs me. Why should they be destroyed for doing what it's in their nature to do? I just want to forget about it, she says. Yeah, I know. I agree. Joe Epps leans against the wall in the hallway outside the office. He straightens when he sees us coming. Same bad suit, same cocky smirk, like he knows things nobody else knows. Nodding at Janine, he tells me we need to talk. I sigh unlock the door, and motion him inside to the stale waiting room. Moving past, Janine gives me a conspiratorial wink before entering her domain. Turning on the lights and adjusting the thermostat, I gesture towards one of the chairs and invite Joe to take a seat. He drops into it, sprawling back like he's exhausted. I remain standing. Sitting in one of those chairs is one thing I will never do. I'm all too aware of the oozes and flakes and scabs that pass through this room. Because I find him annoying, I take perverse pleasure in the way his head and neck sink deeply into the cushion as he inhales the dander of a thousand strangers. Where were you last night? He asks. I went straight home from work and stayed there until I came in this morning, I tell him. Not so, he says. The security camera at the CCC has you in the parking lot from 7.15 to 7.25. So what? I ask. What could possibly have motivated him to look at the security footage from the Caprock Community Center? A person who lies about one thing will lie about anything, he says. Did you set the pigs free? No, I tell him. I'm seeing a connection here to the CCC. What? 
That first call about the elephants was made by someone at a meeting at the CCC. And you also attend meetings at the CCC, and you were the one who called in about the monkeys. So two people from the CCC calling things in. And last night, you were there. Were you meeting someone? Were you there to conspire about freeing pigs? I suppose, as a detective, his mind has to go somewhere for answers, even if it means making things up. I can see how you'd think that, I say. I'll indulge him. But maybe you should take it one step further. Both the CCC and the zoo are city-sponsored. Maybe some crazed citizens sabotaging both of them because they don't like where their taxes are going. It's an absurd theory. Looking thoughtful, he pushes himself out of the chair. Ham enters, sees Joe, shakes his head like he doesn't want to know, and walks through, disappearing into the treatment area. Ham has been down lately. He hasn't smiled in a week. Usually friendly and verbose, his responses have become clipped and evasive. I'm worried about him. You really think this could be politically motivated? Joe asks. He looks sincerely disturbed. Good. Maybe he'll turn his suspicion towards someone other than me. I'm telling you from my heart, I flatten my hand across my chest, my only involvement is that of a justifiably concerned citizen. I worry that the zoo seems out of control. I worry about the person who's turning animals loose. I worry that a man was killed by wolves. All righty then, he says, and he's out the door. At lunch, the stairwalking ladies are all abuzz about Joe paying me a visit. He's eligible, one of them tells me. You should go after him. He comes with monthly child support payments and a vindictive ex-wife, another says. He's so strapped that he only has a car because the department provides it, says another. I march upward, paying no attention to their chatter. He's good-looking, I hear from behind me. Just because he's not fat and he cleans under his fingernails doesn't mean he's good-looking. Around here it does. What do you think about the pigs, I ask, changing the subject. If someone doesn't find them soon, the coyotes will get them. This gruesome certainty brings conversation to a halt. We walk up and down for the rest of the half hour, our heads full of horrifying visions of coyotes ripping the throats out of little pot-bellied pigs. And, by extension, my thoughts turn to wolves ripping the throats out of a little pot-bellied man. That afternoon, Hazel has a few unhurried minutes. She hovers on the other side of my counter, looking pensive, like she's in the mood to talk. So I turn my attention from my computer screen to my friend. Hey, I say, shutting down my work, happy to converse with her. I hear Joe Epps was in this morning. The two of you got something going? She asks. He thinks there might be a connection between the CCC and the break-ins at the zoo. And because I'm at the CCC a lot, he wanted to ask if I know anything. And? I told him I don't think he's on the right track. Oh, I don't know, she says. Who knows what goes on in the heads of some of those wackos who attend those meetings? The malicious gleam in her eye tells me the snide comment is meant to get a rise out of me. Ordinarily, this would hurt my feelings. But I know what I know, and that makes me feel a little more forgiving. Her life is not easy right now, and if she wants someone else to feel bad, too, that's understandable. I went fishing this weekend, I tell her. Why the hell would you do that? She blinks twice, surprised. Did you catch anything? Sometimes it's good just to hang over the water and drop a line. A simple pleasure, I tell her. But no, I didn't catch anything. She studies me for a minute, picturing me with a fishing pole in my hand. She opens her mouth like she's going to say something, then closes it. Then she does it again. I'm pretty sure my father's been going out when I'm gone. She finally gets out. He hasn't been out of the wheelchair in two years, but a couple of times lately I found the keys to his caddy on the counter in the kitchen, and the other night the garage door was open when I got in. This is odd and unexpected. I imagine him, old and bent over, struggling from his chair, shuffling through the house, out the door, and to the garage, and then getting in his car, backing out of the driveway, and driving? Where? 
How is that even possible, I ask. Hell if I know, she tells me, and don't tell me to skip my evenings out. My choir and bridge nights mean the world to me. Have you talked to his doctor? I haven't talked to anyone. Fearful, ashamed, cagey, desperate. That's what I'm seeing in the tilt of her head and the pinch of her lips. But why? She has no reason to feel any of these things. Oh my God, it occurs to me. You think he's the one letting the animals loose. He's been a good man all his life, she says, a leader in the community. Everything he ever did or was will mean nothing. He'll be remembered as the man who went crazy and let the animals out of the zoo. Oh, Hazel, no, I say. No one would ever think that. He's elderly. He's not in his right mind. He probably doesn't even know what he's doing. Anyway, you don't know for sure. What nights are you gone? Tuesdays and Wednesdays from 7 to 10. The nights the elephants and monkeys were released, it does fit the time. It's all just so sad, she says. Gloomy and drooping, she turns and slumps toward the break room at the end of the hall. I follow her. What triggered it, I ask. He wouldn't be just getting out and driving for no reason. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned selling his caddy. I took it to the garage, had the tires checked, and got it detailed. It only gets driven every once in a while. It's worth quite a bit. I don't know anything about cars. Hazel drives the Cadillac to work periodically. It's old and ugly, a chrome-encrusted land yacht from the 70s. But appreciation is subjective. Someone else might think it's beautiful. But what would draw him to the zoo, I ask? Who knows why he does anything, she tells me. Maybe he identifies, maybe he feels caged. His mind is going. Have you thought about putting a GPS in his car, I suggest. How would that work, she wonders. I don't know. Do some research. Or hey, you can load an app on your phone and stick it in the glove box. Sandra, you're a genius. I know, I tell her. Ham needs to leave early today, so we close the office at 3.30. It's turned into one of those windy days where as soon as I step outside, I'm attacked by biting particles that have been shot like tiny missiles from Arizona. When it blows like this, calmness bows to havoc. Gusts howl through the parking garage. My eyes become protective slits. Currents try to push me over as I fight my way to the car. My hair whips all over my head. By the time I reach the CRV, I'm coated with a layer of finely ground dirt. Wind presses against the door as I try to open it. I collapse behind the wheel and the wind slams the door closed. Grit is caught in the corner of my eyes. It coats my lip. It's embedded in my pores. The wind is going the same direction I am. It practically carries me all the way to the zoo. Tansy's silver Toyota is at the far end of the parking lot. I park right in front of the main entrance. Getting out, battling the wind with every step, I stand beside the empty greeter's booth and scan the pathways that fan out to the different clusters of enclosures. I cut my hands around my mouth and call, Hello? The roaring whoosh of the wind is the only sound. Anybody here? No answer, no human movement. Circling the ducks and geese, I approach the corral of farm animals. The cows and goats keep their heads down. A donkey heads my way. The area is just as nasty and stinky as it was the last time I was here. At least the wind keeps the flies down. Do you miss your pig friends? I ask the donkey as it pokes its slimy nose at me. I follow the fence around to the pen that held the pigs. The donkey parallels my steps on the inside. The gate on the pig's pen stands open. The lock is in fair condition. Like the others, it shows no sign of having been tampered with. No scars, no scratches, no dents or crooks. Can I help you? Startled, I turn to face the woman. It's Tansy. Was that you hollering? She asks. Her face is a blank moon, just like it was in high school. Hi, Tansy, I say. 
At first, she doesn't recognize me, but then she does. Sandra Furlow. She says my name like it's a bad taste in her mouth. Did you come to rub it in? What? I ask. No. Rub what in? That I'm in trouble. Isn't it predictable that as soon as something bad happens, you show up to gloat? Where is this hostility coming from, I wonder? I thought she liked me. I've never given her a reason not to. Well, I did call her feckless once in high school, but in my defense, I didn't think she knew what it meant. Maybe she's being overly defensive right now because of her predicament. Or maybe all lesbians are antagonistic. I'm sorry you feel that way. I speak louder than usual because the wind is snatching my words. But this is a public park. I have every right to be here. Just like you had every right to block my locker, cut in front of me in the lunch line, and make fun of my hair and clothes and pretty much everything about me. That was high school, I say. Get over it. Four years of hell, she tells me. What do you think is really going on out here? I ask. Damned if I know. Where are the other employees? What employees? She asks. It was just me and Hector, and now it's just me. This is surprising. Even if this is a small and lousy zoo, it's still too much work for two people. And now, only one person. What about those people the other night? I ask. The ones who helped with the elephants. Uh, from the college down in Hepburn. You're running this place by yourself? I just said that, didn't I? What about the trucks they haul the elephants in? Do they belong to the zoo? A question that's only now occurred to me. I haven't seen any large vehicles or machinery that wouldn't be necessary for zoo maintenance. They belong to the city. How is any of this any of your business? Go away. Instead of retreating, I take a step toward her. She's got several inches on me. Most people do, but I don't let that stand in my way. Holding her eyes with mine, I move my face near hers, invading her space. When my point is made, I turn and walk away. This was not a helpful discussion. On second thought, maybe it's not over. I extract one of my cards from the interior pocket of my purse, return to her, and hand it to her. Here's my contact information, I tell her. Call if I can help you or if you have any new information. Deliberately, she tears it in half and, opening her palms, gives the two halves to the wind. That evening, during the break at Possession Obsession, I share my vexation over the encounter with my friends. So what if I was mean to her in high school, I say. That doesn't mean I can't be worried about her now. Also, that was years ago. People need to get over things and move on. The wind is still pushing toward the east, though it's calmed a bit. Oh, and you've done such a good job of that. This from Karen, who knows as soon as she said it that she shouldn't have. The silence is tense. No one talks to me like that. No one ever brings up what happened. Do you think you've changed since high school? Bill asks her, a well-timed save for his girlfriend. His exhaled smoke is carried up in a way. Does anybody ever really change? Pete asks. People change all the time. Karen's tone is relieved and apologetic. If we can't become better, what are we doing here? All I wanted to do was vent. Then Karen turned on me, and now they've become hypothetical. This conversation isn't going where I wanted it to go. Still, I can't help but appreciate the contradiction in Karen's claim. Is she making any effort to break her shoplifting habit? Are any of us here because we actually want to change anything about ourselves? They're saying those pigs were valuable, Donald says. The they he's referring to are the newscasters. How valuable can pigs be? Is a pig as valuable as an elephant or a monkey? Karen sure is into the abstract this evening. I've had enough talk about the zoo. Also, it seems like everywhere I go these days, someone says something mean to me. I'm tired of all of it. I'm not feeling well, I tell them. I drop my cigarette, lit but not smoked, grind it under my shoe, and walk away. 
Entering the building, I stop by the meeting room. The non-smokers huddle around the coffee machine. They look up when I enter. I grab my purse and toss a not-feeling-well in their direction as I leave the room. And out into the breezy night I go, taking refuge in my car, where I brood for several minutes before turning the key in the admission and heading home. The next morning, I'm still feeling down, so I call the employment agency and request that they send someone to the office to take my place. Then I call Ham and tell him I'm under the weather and that I've arranged for a temp. I silence my phone and spend the day propped on pillows in bed, streaming movies. I don't wash my face, comb my hair, or get dressed, but instead wear only a t-shirt and underwear. Edgar stretches out beside my thigh and purrs, but I know better than to pet him. I don't turn on the news. I don't allow myself to worry about what's going on at the zoo. I refuse to think about those sad women who met at the CCC on Monday night. Every once in a while, Karen's words come back to me. Oh, and you've done such a good job of that. How could she have? At four o'clock, I check my phone. There are five missed calls and six text messages. An unimpressive number. I skip smokers that night, and I don't go to work the next day, either. At the end of the day, there are 14 missed calls and nine text messages on my phone. That's better. I skip grief on Thursday night and stay home on Friday. When my doorbell rings at around 10 in the morning, I'm relieved that finally, finally someone cares enough to go to the trouble to stop by. But when I open the door, it's to see the UPS truck driving away. A brown square box rests in the middle of the welcome mat. My address is scrawled across the top in my mother's handwriting. She has sent me a beige nightshirt that says Nashville across the front, accompanied by a cheerful message. Thanks for taking care of Edgar. Hope you're having a great week. Love, Mom and Dad. I'm irritated with my parents. There are cat people and there are dog people, and there are people who are neither, and that's me. I don't want my house smelling like a cat. I don't want to go to work with hair on my clothes. I don't like having to rush home because I have to feed an animal. When I check my phone, there are 17 missed calls and 12 messages. I bet if she disappeared for several days, Tansy wouldn't have that many people checking on her. That night, I skip addiction, and on Saturday morning, I wake up feeling more positive than I have in days. For the first time since Tuesday night, I shower, wash and blow dry my hair, and put on makeup. Then I go to the gardening section of Home Depot and buy a poplar tree for my backyard. The sales girl assures me it's adaptable and will grow quickly. It's a little too long for the bed of my CRV, so I leave the root ball hanging out the back and drive home slowly and carefully, taking only the side streets. When the hole's dug and the tree's in and watered, I feel satisfied and content. I switch my phone from silent and it rings right then as I'm holding it in my hand. It's Hazel. Where have you been, she asks. I've been calling and calling. Wasn't feeling well, but I'm better now. How are things with your dad? I did what you said, and he is getting out, but all he's doing is driving around the block. That's good, I guess, I say. How do you feel about it? Relieved, frustrated, she tells me. I mean, what's going through his head? It just never ends, you know? There's always some new thing to handle when you're dealing with an elderly person. Every day brings a new kind of crazy. She waits a few seconds, then asks, Are you okay, really? Were you having one of your bouts? No, no, I'm fine. I just planted a tree. I'll be at work on Monday. She says goodbye and disconnects. The next call is from Karen. I heard you haven't been making any of your meetings this week, she says. I haven't been feeling well, I tell her. Were you upset because of what I said? She's worried and sorry, I can tell. I'm still irritated with her, but I don't want her to think that some little thing she said was enough to send me into hiding for several days. Oh, no, I tell her. That had nothing to do with anything. This concludes the third reading of Snooping Caprock by Jen Waldo. 
In the next segment, Sandra will make enemies when she dominates the town meeting, which will result in someone egging her car. Also, the smokers group stages an intervention and the wolves are freed from their enclosure at the zoo.